Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A man appears in court charged with Ashling Murphy's murder. We'll have the latest from Tullamore. The Cabinet lays out plans for easing restrictions and moving on from COVID. It includes a COVID bonus for healthcare workers and an extra bank holiday. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly joins me live in studio. It's the first day of term for TDs as they return from their Christmas break. We'll look to the year ahead and a defection to Labour and calls from senior Tories for him to go. It's another day of turmoil for Boris Johnson. We want to hear what you think. You can get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight in Tullamore and a man has been charged with the murder of teacher Ashling Murphy. The 31-year-old appeared in court earlier amid dramatic scenes. Let's go live now to Tullamore and our crime correspondent Sarah O'Connor is there for us tonight. And Sarah, can you bring us up to date with the very latest and that court appearance tonight? Yes, Claire. Well, the murder of beloved school teacher and musician Ashling Murphy a week ago today as she went for a run uh, along the Grand Canal in Tullamore at four o'clock last Wednesday, shocked and angered the nation. And tonight, 31-year-old Joseph Puska with an address at Lynali Grove in Mukla, just outside Tullamore, appeared before Tullamore, Tullamore District Court charged with her murder. There were emotionally charged scenes at the courthouse tonight just after 8 o'clock. Hundreds of locals lined the streets and were in front of the, the court building as Joseph Puska was transferred to the courthouse from Tullamore Garda Station, the short distance by uh, Garda Convoy amidst tight security. And then he was led out of the car and there was uh, a Garda cordon, two lines of gar- a Garda cordon up the steps of the courthouse and he was led in there uh, in between the two lines of Garda. He walked up the steps and into the courthouse and he appeared before Judge Catherine Staines at Tullamore Courthouse and at the back of the courtroom were members of Ashling Murphy's family who stood at the back of the courtroom with holding photographs of Ashling. and the court heard then that uh, Joseph Puska who stood for the duration of the very short hearing that he was a Slovakian national that he would need a Slovakian interpreter and would need the services of that interpreter going forward. We heard then from Detective Sergeant David Scahill of Tullamore Station who gave evidence of a 
arrest charge and caution. He said that when the charge of murdering Ashling Murphy was put to Joseph Puska tonight at 19.42 at Tullamore Garda Station, that he replied no. We also heard from a solicitor that he's on €200 Euro disability benefit a week and he was granted legal aid and uh, Judge Catherine Staines then remanded him in custody be- automatically because of the nature of the charge to appear again, again before Clover Hill District Court on the 26th of January. And Sarah, uh, dramatic scenes too as Joseph Puska was, was led out of court tonight. Yes, Claire, even, even more emotionally charged scenes as he was led out of court because uh, more and more people had gathered because this was really a very highly anticipated court appearance for obvious reasons. So more people had gathered outside the court building as he was led out again. The guards formed a cordon as he was led down the steps and into that van. And you can see there the van had to take off at some speed um, for security reasons as he was led away to Cloverhill Court uh, where he will be remanded in custody tonight and in the meantime a man also in his 30s who was arrested as part of this investigation earlier today detained in Agartha station in the east of the country on suspicion of withholding information as part of this investigation he has been released without charge and a file has been sent to the DPP. Okay Sarah O'Connor there we leave it thank you for bringing us up to date on that court appearance tonight. The government has announced a tax-free payment of €1,000 for frontline healthcare workers. It was decided at Cabinet this morning, where the government also looked at how to ease COVID restrictions. Well, I'm joined now by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Minister, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Evening, Claire. Let's start with those bonuses for healthcare workers. How is it going to work and how soon will healthcare workers enjoy that bonus? So soon. We hope to have the payments made within the first quarter or so by the end of March. The context obviously is a very encouraging outlook on uh, this Omicron wave, uh, which hopefully now we're moving through. And it was felt that now is the time to do two things. First of all, uh, and most importantly, to recognise the entire national effort. And that's through a a bank holiday for this year and then every year into the future. And really, uh, that's there to remember I remember the more than 6,000 men and women who died um, to reflect and really to mark the extraordinary efforts of a nation in dealing with what has been our greatest challenge in a, in a very long time. And then the second piece, as you say, is it's a payment. It's a one-off payment, uh, mainly for public sector uh, healthcare workers who worked in higher-risk settings, such as hospitals, you know, who wore the masks, who wore the gowns, who went to work every day, Um, putting themselves at risk and it's a one-off payment just to really just to say thank you to them for everything that they've done. Yeah, uh, the frontline healthcare workers um, also included in that hospital porters, cleaners, ambulance workers, student nurses and defence force personnel as well who are involved in in testing and in vaccination Mm. and agency workers too, I believe, who were uh, within the public hospital system, we understand. However, will home care workers be eligible? Well, home care workers, uh, so, so uh, family carers, uh, no, they're, you know, they're working within their own homes, they're working within family homes. Um, but uh, carers who are fulfilling HSE roles, so um, home care packages funded by government, funded by the HSE, they, they will be covered. 
Right. OK. Well, first off, from Home and Community Care Ireland, who represent private home care providers employing around 10,000 carers up and down the country, they said they were awaiting urgent clarity from government on this. Can you give them clarity? Will uh, employees be receiving that payment? Yes, they will. They will be receiving that payment. As for family carers, um, they have been described by their own representative group as the forgotten frontline workers. And they will be forgotten this time around, won't they? Family carers uh, are, are, are never forgotten. Family carers do an extraordinary job. And we're recognising, remember, everyone right across the country they are, for, they for a are national being effort. forgotten here. I mean, they have said, and it is true that they played a hugely significant role in preventing a lot of people actually entering the hospital system, caring for their loved ones at home, doing this at a time when essential supports and services, respite and all of those things were simply not there for them. Um, and they've said they were overlooked when it came to the provision of PPE, priority testing and vaccination. So what do they get? The extra bank holiday that they're not even in a position to take? They have done an incredible job. This payment particularly, though, is for those frontline healthcare workers uh, who were asked to go into higher risk settings. Uh, and I fully understand. I have huge sympathy for uh, family carers. It's why uh, respite services are there. But as you quite rightly say, a lot of the services uh, that make things easier for them uh, during the pandemic uh, weren't in place for the reasons okay, so we what, understand. What is going to be there for them now? Well, well, this payment is specifically for healthcare workers within the public system largely who went into a higher risk environment. So there, there will be workers right across the country, people who drove buses, people who went and worked in the shops and made sure there was food on the shelves. There, there, there are a lot of people who will rightly say, well, we contributed and they did. But this is just a payment for those women and men who, who day after day went into those higher risk settings. OK, and does it go for nurse and frontline workers in, in private hospitals? Um, which, which were taken over by the HSE at the height of this pandemic? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, the, the private hospitals obviously have played a huge role and, and we really relied on them to take on a lot of the non-COVID care during the, during the surges in particular. Uh, it's something that their employers may look at themselves. Is it a bit unfair? I, I think when you're trying to do something like this, when you're trying to recognise workers who went into COVID wards, who went into hospitals where there were a lot of outbreaks, who put themselves at that extra level of risk. Mm. Uh, no matter, you have to bound it somewhere. And no matter where you bound it, there will always be some people who you could say, well, surely this group or surely that group. Because, you know, it's not black and white. There has been a continuum. But ultimately, it, you, you have to make decisions. And, and the decisions that were made were around... Um, public sector, the, the, the public sector hospitals. And, and just to be clear, it, it, it's not to diminish um, the extraordinary contribution from people in healthcare and outside of healthcare, but ultimately you, you, you do have to draw a boundary uh, around it. OK, and, and, the, and the lines have clearly been drawn today on yeah. that one. Um, on the easing of restrictions, and we know we will, you will be getting a letter from NEFET outlining their recommendations around this. What impact will removing the... 8pm curfew have on cases, do you think? Well, there's a, there's a broader question, isn't there, which is... Reg but on that question? Well, it, it, it's impossible for anyone to say on any particular measure what will happen. But what we can do is we can say, in the round, um, will relaxing restrictions uh, increase transmission? It, it will. It will increase transmission. But what we know, largely thanks to uh, the booster programme and people stepping up, 
is that the country has been, a, been able to manage uh, up to about half a million cases a week. So the question is, now the cases are falling, hospitalizations are falling, can we manage uh, a short-term increase in transmission? And that's exactly what uh, the government is looking at, the public health teams are looking at. M- my view is that, yes, we can. You know, we, are you conscious that you're taking a risk here in, in, in lifting those restrictions? We'll certainly be conscious... Uh, that there is a risk to increase transmission, yes. Uh, but the context for that has to be the country has managed about half a million cases a week. So can we manage uh, an increase? I, I, I believe we can. OK. People are looking for certainty. Businesses want certainty. And people sitting at home want to know, can they plan? They want certainty too. Um, can you categorically say then that we're not going back? Not going back to... Not going back to restrictions, the curfews that we're likely to see. Say there is a spike in cases. Say you, you, say, you say we'll stay open till midnight. Could you pu- pull it back to 10pm? Can you say no, we will not be going back to the sort of curfew-like restrictions that we've had in place with this Omicron wave? Yes, certainly not on this wave, no. The, the country has weathered a, a huge tsunami. You know, a, a huge number of people uh, have got it. Now... Um, will there be future variants of concern? Will Omicron mutate in some way that makes it more dangerous? Obviously, we'll keep that under, uh, uh, under very close review. And of course, it's possible, as for the past two years, we'll have to adapt. But on this wave, we're through the peak, right? We have um, about 900 COVID patients uh, in hospital. And we got new information just today that only a little over half of them Um, are being actively treated for COVID at the moment. Mm. Critical care has stayed stable. Um, So even with a relaxation, no, we we, we will not be looking to reimpose measures. Is there a political push here? We had uh, the Thánaiste Lee of Radcar, we know, addressing his parliamentary party and details of that um, leaked around his optimism that all restrictions could be lifted by this 31st of March date. Everyone's falling over themselves to deliver some good news. But at the same time, we have the WHO saying, warning, in fact, that the pandemic is nowhere near over. Are we in danger of promising too much here? No, we're, we're, we're not. The pandemic is, is not over. The WHO is right. Uh, we will be watching for future variants of concern. Um, we'll be watching what Omicron may do in the future in Ireland as, um, as the population's immunity wanes. So the pandemic is not over. Um, but the evidence is pretty clear that we are through the worst of this Omicron wave. Um, and my view, Claire, is... These are very difficult measures that have been put in place for people. They've come at a very high cost to people in terms of isolation, loneliness, mental health, their livelihoods. Our art sector has been decimated. The hospitality sector has been through such a difficult time. We should only have these measures in place when there's a strong public health rationale. When that rationale now, the reduces, even, ra- even for a short period of time, that you, you've got to remove the measures. Yeah, I just want to ask you about that, that 8pm. That wasn't science, a science-based decision. Um, arguably, would we have seen any difference in the case numbers if we didn't have it at 8pm, if we had it at 10pm, if you allowed businesses who critically so want to survive in this, in this pandemic to go on and serve customers, keep spaces open, keep cinemas open beyond 8 o'clock? It was drastic. Did it have the effect you wanted to have? Um, there's no, you're, you're quite right in that there's no exact science to 6 o'clock, 8 o'clock or, or, or 9 o'clock, but there would be a high degree of confidence from the public health teams uh, that reduced transmission. 
uh, reduce social contacts obviously reduces transmission uh, and there is very strong evidence that when you are looking at a wave like this that those areas identified are areas where you um, where you do get increased transmission and certainly conversations I've had with my counterparts health ministers in other countries they do talk particularly with Omicron because it's been so contagious mm. they have talked about super spreader events in 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 hospitality Right, and, and happy then to have made that move around 8pm, although um, hopefully seeing that lifted um, soon. So on this return to normality and all this talk we heard from the Thornish and indeed from yourself about moving back um, essentially to the way, thing, the, the way things were. For example, on household visits will, and, and the four, per, per household, four households allowed gathered together, will they be lifted soon? So it, it's not helpful. As you quite rightly said, people need certainty. Uh, government is going to meet on Friday and the Taoiseach will provide certainty to the country after the government meets and the government decides. So uh, it wouldn't be fair of me on, on the people watching this evening for me to be speculating as to what might happen. But as an approach, these measures should only be in place if there's a strong public health rationale for them to be there on the basis that we are, I believe, through the peak and on the basis that the country has managed uh, when it came to very high case numbers, uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of cause for hope and optimism. That that's, that's likely to change. Um, on the wider issue and the restrictions that people sadly have got so used to over the past couple of years, for example, restriction on hospital visits, um, can you see those coming to an end? You know, there's people who, and they had loved ones who are very ill in hospital, in fact, um, they may have died in hospital and they can't have their family around them. That's still the case. Are we likely to see change on that in the coming weeks? Um, and this return, not to the, the new normal with restrictions still in place, but actually a return to what, what it was like pre-pandemic in that regard. So I, I really hope so. Now, those measures are measures that are really made by the, the HSC and sometimes on a hospital-by-hospital hospital basis. So the government doesn't tend to get involved in saying, you know, visits are allowed in hospitals. Um, individual hospitals in the HSC will make infection prevention and control decisions there. Um, take nursing homes. At the moment, we're dealing with a, a large number of outbreaks in nursing homes, actually. We've had 70 outbreaks in the last week. Now, really encouragingly, we're not seeing that translate into people getting really sick. The level of severity is, is very low because of the boosters. But healthcare settings are different to uh, the government decisions. But as I was saying, we're now down to about 900 patients across the entire hospital system and only about half of them, a little over but half, have so been actively treated. Is there room treated. for manoeuvre on the likes of visiting hours and, and, and the number of people who can visit I, loved ones? And I certainly would like to see that happen. You know, as the, as the community cases fall and as the cases in the hospital fall, these things will be looked at. However, the HSE obviously will make the point. They'll say, our patients are higher risk they have underlying conditions, they may be immunocompromised, so they, they will have to be more careful, obviously. Okay. Around mask wearing, is there an end date in mind for children, say, in primary school? Some of these measures that were brought in, um, especially, you know, with, with Omicron and all of that, and we were told at the time that's going to be an emergency measure, it's not going to be forever. Are we going to see an end to that soon? Uh, rather than speculating on that tonight, I'll be meeting with the chief medical officer post-NEFA tomorrow. These are exactly the things that they're, that they're looking through to see when we can relax these measures because these things aren't unlikely. Um, I've got three kids in school myself. Two of them go in with masks every day. They get used to it, but it's not nice. 
you know, you don't want to see your kids in school with these things. No, no parent does. So, again, the moment we have the advice from the medical experts saying, really, the public health rationale now doesn't support these, we need to remove them. I know that you're in favour of, with big sporting events coming up, um, the likes of the Six Nations um, at, the Aviva, at the Aviva Stadium. Um, the Aviva Stadium director, Martin Murphy, said he'd like the government to stipulate that masks are mandatory in the Aviva. Should we have full capacity crowds for those that attend matches if Neffert continues to advocate for them in those busy outdoor settings? Um, Will you be issuing specific guidance on mask wearing at matches? Well, first, let's hope we can get to full capacity. I bumped into Johnny Sexton earlier on in the week, a hero of mine, and he very understandably said, can we please get back you know, to full capacity at Lansdowne for the Six Nations? And obviously there's a lot of other sporting events as well. So first of all, let's hope we can do that. If the public health advice says, yes, masks are still uh, warranted in these large things where we have full capacity, uh, well, then we, then we will support that and we need to work with the IRFU, with Should the FAI and with others. Place, then, just to give that. that certainty, if you look at this variant, when we see its transmission um, in a packed stadium, um, lots of shouts and cheers and rightly supporting uh, their team, yeah. that there could be a chance of, of it being a, you know, an event that you could see high transmission at, that masks would be, would be mandatory. So I guess it depends what we mean by a mandate. Like, would I regulate for it in law to make it a, a, you know, a punishable offence? I think that's probably unlikely. We only have that in, uh, in, in a very limited number of settings. But would we work with the likes of the IRFU, the FAI and others to say, look, you really need to be uh, trying to enforce this on an advisory capacity within the stadiums? If the public health advice is there for that, then obviously that is something we should do. Yeah. OK, the future of COVID passes have been called into question. Again, we had the Thornister saying by March 31st, he'd like to see them go, except in the case of international travel. Would you like to see them abolished? I would like to see them abolished as soon as they are no longer of use in keeping people safe. They have been very useful. Uh, and a lot of people take comfort from it, particularly people who are more vulnerable to COVID. They say, look, I, I, I'm comfortable going into the pub or going into the restaurant, knowing that everyone else in there is protected as well. The chance of me getting this is much lower. And that's been really important for a lot of people. But we can only, there's only about 6% of adults now have chosen not to get, uh, not to get, boot, uh, not to get vaccinated. Um, so we, we, we have to look to that. But as you say, the first question is not um, how long we keep them for. We know they're going to be in place for international travel for a while. The first question is, is there a rationale to have them here or not? Is there? The, w- well, again, I, I, I want to wait. We need, I need to wait well, for, the, for, for, for a cabinet know, decision. We know and the, that the actually, will it... we know with Omicron, so being vaccinated didn't stop the transmission of Omicron. Therefore, to have a vaccine pass... To, to dine out or, or to, to, to drink, to go to a pub with friends. Is well, it necessary? Well, well we know that, that being vaccinated and being boosted does significantly uh, re- reduce the time that you critically, are infectious. Because I know right. that's something that you've yeah. been lauding the public for, that a lot of people who could got boosted. Um, so in that case, then, do you want to extend the pass and have that people need to be boosted in order to in- enjoy indoor facilities? 
If the pass were to be extended, then it would make sense for either booster or infection within the last three months to be part of that for exactly that reason, because that's what gives the protection and that's what gives the lower transmission as well. However, the first question we have to ask is, is there still a role in domestic policy for the pass? The legislation that underpins it uh, falls at the end of March. And so there's a question as to whether or not you want to extend that legislation at all. I would, I would very much hope that we, that we don't need to do that. Okay, let's talk about a, a story that's causing increasing controversy. And this is the Champagne uh, Party at the Department of Foreign Affairs. If it happened within your own department, what would you do? I think it would depend on the context. What we have is a photograph. I, I think I would do what Simon Coveney has done and say, look, we need to establish the facts and ask for a review uh, and take it from there once well, we have the facts. You did go along and address the troops. So, I mean, in that instance, would you have, would you have gone along to, to that gathering and knowing that gathering happened? I mean, the photo was put up at the time in 2020, in June, when we had level four restrictions in place. I, I, I can't answer uh, exactly. I'm not familiar does with the entire bad? circumstances. It does look bad. And it has been accepted that it shouldn't have happened and it has been apologised for and it is being looked into. Uh, and I, I think that is right and proper. OK, an internal investigation, some would say. What's the point? Well, we need to establish the facts. And that's exactly how we establish the facts. That's what Minister Coveney has asked for. He's obviously agreed to appear before an Oireachtas committee if that is, uh, if that is necessary. But, uh, you know, step one, do the review, establish exactly what happened. Should it have happened? It shouldn't have happened. And, I, and, and the people involved, I think, have accepted that and do feel very bad about the fact that uh, it did. Yeah. What would you like to see happen? I mean, the facts as we know them, like we saw the photographs. So, I mean, should there be apologies all around? What, what needs to happen? I think there have been apologies, and if, and if, if uh, fuller apologies or, or different apologies from different people are required, then, then absolutely. Um, but, but it's impossible to say what else without first having the review. So let's have that, and then let's, let's, let's judge it on, on, on what happened. OK, we shall wait and see on that one. Thank you for that, Minister Stephen Donnelly, for joining me in studio tonight. Now, uh, coming up next, all the other big issues away from COVID as it all heads back for its first day of term. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. It was back to school for TDs today as the Dáil returned after the Christmas break. COVID may have dominated all politics for the last two years, but as the Omicron wave fades, other issues will creep up the political agenda. Well, to discuss the year ahead, I'm joined by political correspondent at the Irish Times, Harry McGee, Green Party TD, Nasa Horrigan, and Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you, Harry, um, it is a big year ahead, isn't it? I mean, I think there, there are lots of plans that have been announced. There are a lot of promises being announced by this coalition government. Um, and that pressure to deliver, will they manage to do any of it? Well, I mean, I don't think any government has ever delivered completely on its programme for government. I think government's job is to propose and uh, opposition's job is to dispose. And we see a lot of that during the course of the year. They have very ambitious plans, but delivery is is huge. Uh, For example, last week I was covering the Climate Change Committee, the Environment Committee, looking at the carbon budgets and just looking at the targets and looking at what has to be done to reduce uh, emissions by 51% over the next year, it's just going to be extraordinarily difficult, if not I- impossible. And that's just one example of a policy area that's going to prove very problematic for the government in terms of implementation and delivery. To, to bring you in on that, NASA, what's happening with the Climate Action Plan? Because it was announced with great fanfare. It came off the back of that COP26 appearance by Antishak Michal Martin when he went over and he addressed the, the conference and there was so much talk about global targets and then we set our own really ambitious targets that everyone said, or plenty of people, especially green campaigners, said this is great, this needs to be done, mm-hmm. but we're already largely on the back foot with it all. I mean, it's always going to be a huge challenge. We basically had a decade where we did nothing on climate change, so we're very far behind other European countries. Um, The the Climate Action Plan, or the Climate Bill, in in fairness, put a a binding set of targets for the next 10 years, and therefore every single department is going to have to come up to the mark. I think there is an issue around capacity building, and certainly over the next few years we're we're going to be struggling, you know, as a society, um, in terms of building capacity around things like energy, around things like construction, meeting those targets, um, but also finding the funding. You know, things like retrofit are going to cost money. Things like public transport are going to cost funding, cost money. And as we see, you know, the EU certainly are moving in that direction. Um, groups like the IMF are saying that is where funding is going to be available. But, you know, we're going to have to be very dynamic and, 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 um, you know. What does that mean when you say we don't have the money, so we're going to have to be dynamic? Well, I, I'm not saying that we don't have the, the money. I'm saying that we're going to have to be, um, absolutely, um, you know, focused on 
accessing funds and accessing uh, money across both you know EU and international markets um, so that we can pay for things like retrofit and things like public transport that is is no but mean feat it's not be a paying small for things and like have, retrofitting as well oh, they? oh they absolutely will but it's also in the context that while you know we have seen a huge amount of um, tax take in the last year we've also spent a huge amount of money during covid you know we have increased our debt um, and and so we're coming out of a period where we have spent a huge amount there's been a huge amount of public spending this high inflation yeah. but we also need to spend in the next 10 years. So do you think the target that has been set, say, for this year is achievable? I, I like to think it is. I do actually think it's achievable. Honestly, I would have liked higher targets. And, and it is that, that question around capacity. I, I do think it's achievable, but it requires a commitment across every single department. And it's not just, you know, it can be quite a narrow thing where we, we just talk about energy um, and carbon emissions. But we also have to start talking about biodiversity. We're in the middle of a, a massive species collapse. Um, hopefully this year we'll see um, the, the Citizens Assembly on, on biodiversity and really get to grips with land management and land planning in this country. So it's not just the, the issue around the climate bill and, and energy targets. Okay. Um, Sinn Féin have been criticised for sort of wavering around the climate action issue, Louise. Um, on this one, are you going to stand with government, really support it and try and ensure that we meet those targets? Well, I think it's important that the targets are met, but I think it's also really important that we don't lose sight of the people who are at the business end uh, of these policies. So we are dealing, and I am in, in my offices in, in Balbriggan and in Swords every day of the week with people who can't afford to heat their homes. So retrofit is not on their agenda because they don't have enough money right now to actually heat their homes. I spoke to a woman the other day, uh, worked all her life. She's 65 and a half years of age, and she tells me on her days off from work, she goes to the shopping centre in Swords so that she can can keep warm. She would love to be able to retrofit her home, but she cannot afford it. She would love to be more energy efficient in how she uh, in how she uses the energy. She cannot afford it. So I think you know we need to. Well, the, so the targets the, are ambitious. The Sinn Féin, I, well, the targets are ambitious. Targets, we but need realistically to, don't prioritise on them. What we need to do is we need to look at the lived reality. So for very very many people. This winter, they can't afford to heat their homes. So the response from government has been, don't worry, in March, as the days get longer and it starts to get warmer, you'll get €100 Euros towards your ESB bill. But you actually need to go to where people are at and ensure if people want, and people on low incomes want to be able to retrofit their homes, well, then they need to be supported to do okay. that. Um, you know, that, um, you do, Louise spoke about there, the cost of living, it's at a 20-year high. Um, that's really going to shape how, how the government sort of moves and makes decisions this year. Surely it has to. Like, we've this €100 Euro bill coming off sometime, uh, €100 Euro coming off electricity bill sometime in the spring. Um, some would say, you know, will, is that just a, a sort of a token move, um, popular well, potentially with voters? It is a token move. It's €100 Euro to everybody. So it's not... It, there is a question of equity that mm -hmm. arises in relation to that payment. So it's a bit of a sop, uh, in my uh, opinion. I think that they could have put a bit more thought into how they were going to uh, recompense people. Of course, their argument being it would cost more to decide how to give it, it to it, those. It, it, it might have, yeah, but there, there, there are different ways of skinning a cat. I think they could, they could have done that differently. I think when you talk about the, the, um, the, the climate challenge uh, holistically, it's going to involve an awful lot of pain for everybody in society. And people are going to have to take sacrifices and have to give up things that they, that they have become used to uh, uh, during the course of their lives in terms of flights, in terms of, of individual car travel. But then there are wins on the other side uh, as well. But there will be some sacrifices and there will be some pain for people if we are to achieve our targets. And there's no point in beating around the bush 
uh, about that. Housing, another another big issue, um, never left the headlines. And, and, you know, with all this pent-up demand, we're not likely to see the price drops this year that the government may have been hoping to say, look, it is more affordable now. You know, you can get on, you can get your home. Um, you've been living at home with your parents for long enough or, you know, you need to move to a bigger place. They're not really going to be in a position to, to guarantee that this year, are they? No, and that's compounded as well by the rising inflation that we've been seeing over the past year, uh, which has made what was unaffordable even more uh, unaffordable. And it's very confusing trying to read what different commentators are saying about inflation. Some are saying it's only temporary and that uh, matters will be resolved by the end of 2022. Others are saying that what we have is something that's going to be a phenomenon uh, that will uh, continue uh, for a number of years. But if, if the inflation situation doesn't begin to resolve itself, it is going to have knock-on effects uh, for people, and especially those who are trying to get on the housing ladder. And that's going to be another big problem for the government uh, when it comes to trying to resolve an already difficult housing situation. In terms of coalition promises, like housing was the bi- a big one. And um, we had the housing plan laid out and promises of all, you know, a number of units, um, homes being built every year. Um, I mean, there's even calls that things aren't being done around sort of derelict sites and, and these issues that maybe could let, you know, houses come on the market quite quickly. It's not happening quickly enough. Well, I, I, I think that that is possibly fa- a fair comment g- given the COVID um, crisis and the year that we've had. I think that we will start to see things like the town centre first policy come into play, which is around kind of strengthening um, particular um, towns and villages around the country and ensuring that people um, have access to proper services so that they can get to that completion rate faster. One of the things I'd like to see this year, particularly, um, is the national strategy on um, housing for disabled persons. I think that that it's, it should be less around getting on the, the housing ladder and more ab- around finding affordable homes for people. Um, and so I think that we can no longer kind of point to the COVID crisis as a reason why, you know, we aren't getting to that completion rate that, w- that we promised. And I think that we either learn to live with COVID in terms of the construction industry and, and, and still make those completions or, or we're moving out of COVID and we have to deliver the units. I do think, though, that, and it does speak to the, the issue around the cost of living, one of the companion policies that, you know, we, we should see kind of spring into action this year is the wellbeing indicators structure around the budget. Um, that will be looking at, you know, the quality of people's lives and, mm. and very much will speak to the cost of living. And what you would hope to see once that is implemented across the budget is decisions like, for example, spending less money on HAP and more money on cost rental programs. Right, okay. Um, you know, we know that the, 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 the housing targets were ambitious, though. In fact, Sinn Féin wanted to see a lot more houses mm. um, coming on stream. Would you accept that it is going to be difficult for the government in this climate to reach the targets? Oh, sure. You know, the cost of materials, uh, the demand and the lack of supply. Yeah, they, they've no end of excuses, um, the government, but they themselves have said that they will uh, they will stand or fall by their own housing policy thus far as failing. Um, it's failing people who can't move out of their parents' back bedroom. It's failing people who are on the housing list. It's failing people in emergency accommodation. What could happen failing to people make in direct provision. Failing people with disabilities. Failing yeah. lone parents. Failing people on low incomes. So we know that what they're doing is not working. What I would like to see uh, is that 
that the government would actually look towards doubling the capital investment in housing, ensuring that social and affordable homes can actually be delivered, set a target and meet that target. So how much are we talking about doubling? 20,000. We're talking about 20,000 homes being built. Uh, we're talking about doubling the capital investment, but we're also talking not just about social and affordable homes, but also about where people are living, what amenities go along with it. We can't simply have building for the sake of building. We need to build communities and communities that are sustainable. But at the moment, the housing list is rising. The numbers of people in homelessness are rising. People are stuck in direct provision and they can't move out. So all of the promises that were made by the government, they can't blame COVID for everything. There was construction. We know that things were being built. Look around Dublin. I mean, what we definitely do not need, and I know it's government policy to build as many hotels as possible. We don't need another hotel in Dublin. And yet hotels were built during the crisis, during the COVID crisis. We don't need another hotel. What we need are homes. So construction happened, but the government was not directing it. All right. Um, Harry, just on where the coalition, briefly, where the coalition goes from here this year, like they were bound together, in essence, these three parties by that common mission, the common en- enemy, that being COVID. Um, for all this talk, we heard Stephen Donnelly sounding pretty optimistic that we're over, over the worst of it, certainly this wave anyway, and we begin to move on now. Is that going to cause its own problems? Um, it will cause problems, but it will also cause opportunities. But um, we're probably nearer the uh, beginning of the end rather than the end of the beginning. But I, I would put in a caveat there, you know, the Omicron variants can be random. So the next variant of, or sorry, the COVID variants can be random. Mm. The next variant might be far more uh, toxic uh, than, the, than the Omicron one, which was relatively mild. And so we do have to be careful, you know, in terms of monitoring the situation. The big problem is a global problem, not really an Irish one. COVAX just isn't doing the job. We need Pfizer and other big pharmaceutical companies to give their patents to the third world in order that all of those developing countries uh, get their viruses and get vaccinated. Because otherwise... This yeah. is a global problem. This problem will continue to perpetuate. There's pressure on our government to support that um, in any way it can, which um, we're still you know, waiting to see on regarding the patents, at least. Now, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Louise O'Reilly and Nasa Hurricane. Um, Harry will be staying with me as we discuss the chaos in the UK government as Boris Johnson fights for his political career. Welcome back. There have been a lot of bad days for Boris Johnson in the last month, but today could take some beating. It began with talks of backroom plots as members of his own party mulled over whether to get rid of him. Just before Prime Minister's questions, another bombshell, a member of his own party who had just been elected two years ago, defected across the aisle to Labour. And just a few minutes later, this blistering call from senior Tory David Davis. I expect my leaders 
to shoulder the responsibility for the actions they take. Yesterday, he did the opposite of that. So I'll remind him of a quotation altogether too familiar to him of Leo Amory to Neville Chamberlain. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. Well, earlier I spoke to Ollie Bowers, correspondent for Feature Story News. I began by asking him about the events of the day. Well, these were two bombshells, really. That defection of Christian Wakeford came just moments before Prime Minister's questions in the House of Commons. A Prime Minister's questions we knew was going to be significant and opportunity for Boris Johnson to try and get back on the front foot, to try and put in a performance in the Commons that would please some of his MPs who've been disgruntled about his recent performance. And so that really did rock the Prime Minister heading into PMQs. And that David Davis moment at the end of Prime Minister's questions. A very senior Conservative, a former minister who worked uh, closely with Boris Johnson on issues like Brexit, putting his head above the parapet and saying that Boris Johnson effectively should go, he says, because of a lack of leadership coming from the Prime Minister. In some ways, they were bombshells. In others, they may have actually galvanised parts of the Conservative Party. Some Conservative MPs believe that the way Christian Wakeford has behaved is simply wrong to defect to another party. They would rather He'd stayed in the Conservatives and tried to potentially challenge Boris Johnson from within. Uh, many Conservative MPs don't want to give the opposition Labour Party any wins, any further wins right now. And so, in a sense, Boris Johnson, as I say, was galvanised by both of those two events in the Commons today. But, of course, not a good look to have an MP defecting, especially when the Labour Party is briefing tonight that there could be more defections on the way. Yeah, tell us about these letters of no confidence uh, and the key number required to trigger a heave and whether or not it's likely that that may happen. It's a very arcane process. You have to have 15% of the parliamentary party writing letters to the 1922 committee of backbench MPs saying that they think Boris Johnson should go. So that would be 54 MPs. That would trigger a confidence vote. Boris Johnson could win that confidence vote and then he can't face another one for a year or he could lose it if he doesn't get 50% of the support of his MPs and then you effectively have Boris Johnson leaving his position and a leadership campaign to see who takes over from him. The crucial point, though, these letters go in secret we do not know how many are there already. We don't know whether more went in today. We don't know whether some MPs decided to withdraw their letters after Boris Johnson's defiant performance in the House of Commons today. Some suggestions over the last 24 hours, we might be up to 20 or 30 letters, but really difficult to tell. The only person who knows is a man called Sir Graham Brady, who chairs the 1922 committee, and he famously says he doesn't tell anyone how many he's got, even his wife. Is there a sense that Boris Johnson is on borrowed time here or could he get away with it all? There's very much the sense that he is in the last chance saloon. Some Conservative MPs in his party are saying, look, I don't feel that now is the time to unseat him, but we're waiting for that independent investigation into all these allegations of parties in and around Downing Street over the last 18 months by a civil servant called Sue Gray. Many Conservative MPs are saying, look, we will wait for that report. If it is damning, if it is highly critical, if it contains new revelations about Boris Johnson, if it suggests that he misled Parliament, then there are uh, quite a large amount of Conservative MPs who will pull the trigger at that point. 
There is also the sense in the party that one more big mistake, one more fresh set of revelations about a new scandal, one misstep by Boris Johnson's government, and again, a number of Conservative MPs will try and pull the trigger. A couple of things that are keeping some MPs from doing that. One, as I say, is that if Boris Johnson wins a confidence vote, he then can't be challenged for another 12 months. So those MPs who want him gone want to make sure they get the timing right. The other point is we have local elections coming up in May, and some Conservative MPs who want Boris Johnson gone think that it might be better to see the Conservatives perform badly, then remove the Prime Minister and uh, move on to another leader. It, there's also the possibility, of course, that Boris Johnson turns this round. It's always been unwise in the past to write off Boris Johnson when it comes to his political career. All right, for now, there we leave it. Ollie Barrett from Feature Story News, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Well, unsurprisingly, the front pages of the UK papers are leading with this story. The Guardian uh, quotes, uh, is that the Daily Telegraph we're seeing there first? Yeah, the Daily Telegraph says, uh, oh, we have the Guardian back. It quotes David Davis that we heard earlier saying, Tory anger builds as PM clings on. And the Telegraph says, Johnson, I won't quit uh, if rebels force votes. Uh, they are, no surprise there, as you say, dominating all the headlines. Um, it is of interest here too. Is it a matter of when now and not if Boris Johnson goes, but critically it's about that timing? It's, it's very much looks like that way. I mangled Churchill earlier on saying, is it the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end? Uh, Johnson loves uh, Churchill. I think for him it's now the beginning of the end, maybe even the middle of the end or the end of the end. And what David Davis said tonight was pivotal. In the name of God, go former minister, uh, very much to the right of, of the Tory party, a grandee, uh, to use their particular uh, own lexicon. And uh, what he said was very influential. And as we see in the papers, it has huge uh, resonance. How many names does Graham Brady and the 1922 committee have? We just don't know. But Boris Johnson is in a perilous place in terms of his position as Prime Minister. Uh, the big question is, if he does go, who his replacement might be, and that might be the sticking point for Tories at the moment, if they, if they don't know exactly who they want to replace uh, Boris Johnson with. It also affects, of course, the Anglo-Irish relations and, and Brexit and, and what's happening and I suppose Boris Johnson's interest there and protocol and all the other issues that we're facing into again this year. Yeah, I mean, if there is a change of Prime Minister, uh, I think there will be a change of emphasis in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the triggering of Article 16 uh, and all of that. Uh, there's a very influential core of right-wing uh, uh, MPs uh, within the Tory party at the moment. And if the, uh, if the Tories elected somebody who was to the right uh, of Boris Johnson, I think it would have very serious ramifications uh, for the already precarious uh, position that the Northern Ireland Protocol is in. Briefly, Harry, we can't be holier than thou in all of this. We've Simon Coveney now appearing before um, Department uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, when's that likely to happen? Um, I, I think it will be sooner rather than later. I think next week he'll probably appear before the committee next week uh, if uh, all the T's are crossed and the I's dotted. I can't see why not. I think it's not quite as serious as what happened uh, in Downing Street. Uh, there wasn't a string of parties. It wasn't organised. It was spontaneous. But it was a clear breach of guidelines and it has not been handled well either by the Department of Foreign Affairs or indeed by Simon Coveney or Leo Varadkar over the past couple of days. OK, there we leave it. Uh, Harry McGee, thank you for that. And that is it uh, from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Do take care.
This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 